Hello and welcome to Well, I Know Now, the podcast in which I talk to people affected by dementia in all sorts of different ways. We chat about what they know now, what they wish they'd known earlier, and what their experience has taught them about dementia, about life, about anything and everything. I'm Pippa Kelly. My mum lived with vascular dementia for the last decade of her life. She's no longer with us. But one of the main things that mum's dementia taught me and my family was just how little we knew about it. Now, through my work as a dementia blogger and campaigner, I know so much more about this incurable condition. Not least that the smallest things can make a huge difference to those with dementia and their families and carers. I called this podcast after a quote from author and poet Sylvia Plath, who wrote... Well, I know now a little more about how a simple thing like a snowfall can mean to a person. And dementia teaches you this, too. My guest today has a background in public relations, marketing and journalism. A little-known fact about her is that at one point she was the only international Formula One powerboat racing journalist in the world. It's a long way from the high-octane glamour of powerboat racing to the choppy waters of health and social care, but Zoe Harris is nothing if not adaptable and resourceful. When her husband Jeff went to live in a care home several years after he developed dementia, Zoe soon realised that his lack of verbal communication was not only impacting on his quality of life, but, drastic as it may sound, severely compromising his health. Because Jeff couldn't tell his carers that he liked his tea black, they made it white. He didn't drink it and in the space of two days became dangerously dehydrated. Zoe is a doer, not a moaner. She took matters into her own hands. Nothing radical. She just jotted down Jeff's preferences on post-it notes and stuck them round his room, thus ensuring that all his carers, even new ones or holiday replacements, couldn't fail to see them read them and act on them. So straightforward, yet so very effective. So effective, in fact, that very soon the care home manager asked Zoe if she could replicate the system for other residents. And from these rather Heath Robinson-ish beginnings grew Zoe's various award-winning enterprises, all designed to ensure that people with communication difficulties, whether because of dementia or other conditions, can convey their wishes. So, Zoe Harris, welcome to Well I Know Now. Thank you, Pippa. Fantastic introduction. <laughs> Good, glad you liked it. From groundbreaking jet-setting powerboat journalism to social care enterprises, I must ask first, did you ever think you'd end up doing what you're doing today? <laughs> <laughs> totally not. <laughs> Do you ever think in your 20s that you're ever going to reach your 50s? So no. you're not <laughs> going to think about that point. anyway. No, not at all. And it is amusing, isn't it, to look at um, what I was doing then, producing things around powerboat racing to now ensuring people can communicate their needs when they can't communicate them from themselves. But there is a sort of a, a link in the work that I've done from those early beginnings, which was just finding something that hadn't been done before and that needed to be done. So a totally unimportant example is the powerboat world where I produced the first annual because 
nothing had been produced like that before and it seemed like an obvious thing. So I saw that you did that when you were do. 22 or something. Incredible. I did. Yeah, well, you know, ignorance is bliss if I knew <laughs> if I knew then what I know now. <laughs> and yes, yeah, so I did that for the next 4 years, learned a lot. And then I was, it was in the powerboating world for a, a number of more years, but it actually it wasn't financially viable to continue doing that. But the theme was, again, the work I've done more recently was seeing that something needed to be done and no one was doing it. And mm. so I jumped in. And again, I suppose if I'd really thought about it a lot and done a, a serious business plan or whatever, would I have ever started the care charts? I don't know. But I did one for Jeff purely because I wanted to communicate his needs. And as you said, when the manager came to me and said, can I have some more of those for my other residents, uh, the penny dropped. And it was clear that here was something that was badly needed. Nobody was producing it. There was an opportunity to improve care for thousands of other people that were in the same position as Jeff. And so we set out and produced some more, did some trials, tested it there, put it out to other care homes. Mm. And here we are with about 1,500 care homes over the country Brilliant. have gone on to adopt them. So if we go back a bit now then to your, to your earlier life and your schooling, and in fact, you were a bit of a tomboy, I gather, when you were young. I was. Somehow oh, doesn't surprise me, actually. <laughs> <laughs> in the nicest possible way. Thank you. No, I've never been a, a girly sort of girl. Yeah. Yeah. Part of it, of course, I had two and then later three brothers, and I was brought up on a farm. Right. You know, none of that was conducive to was wearing it, frilly things. In Sussex, Pulborough, in yes. West Sussex. Yes. So we were quite deep into the countryside. And we had those, you know, is it just memories? I don't know. But I have memories of summer holidays, roaming the countryside, spending... Funny, the inter- they were, <laughs> always. I seemed to spend my earlier years without any shoes on all summer. And literally going for bike rides all day. Parents seemed to not worry that you were out from nine until mm. six in the evening. Mm. We will say that you couldn't do that now. Yeah, yeah. So you had um, a nice but, sort of carefree childhood and yes. all stuff. And then in your 20s, tell us how your career developed from the powerboat racing. And... Yes, well, the powerboat world suffered its problems because a lot of powerboat drivers were being killed through the technology with the engines was overtaking the technology of the boats. So without going into that in great detail, but essentially what was happening was boats were originally designed that if the driver failed to keep it on the water, it would flip. But the driver would get thrown out and they they might even break a leg, but they would rarely be killed. The engines then got heavier and heavier. Mm. So instead of the boat flipping into the air, it would just flip straight over. The driver would be caught Mm. in the cockpit and they would be killed. And so that caused a lot of problems with sponsorship and, of course, you needed sponsors to run these events and to pay for people like me to do the PR and the journalism to go in and, and, and do them. And so there was a sort of natural moment when I thought this is not tenable, I had to move on and find something else. Mm. And sort of following on from the publishing work that I'd been doing, I set up a business to do print management and marketing consultancy and built that up. It was only ever a, a small business, but it grew slowly. I had a number of clients, but I picked up a particular client who ended up being sort of almost half of my work. Mm. It was interesting work because I was writing the prospectuses for companies looking to raise money. And I was also responsible for their marketing activities to find investors. And so I was using a lot of the skills that I developed. 
And then they were growing as a business and invited me to join them on the board as their marketing director. Mm. And effectively, I took into the company the work that they'd been paying for out of house and then built up their marketing department. So I spent a few years doing that. It's striking me that those were all really good skills, though, for what you later came on to do, the first of which was Care Charts UK, literally mm. really building on the, the post-it notes that you posted around Jeff's room. But interesting that you had those skills, didn't you, of a business person, of a growing a small company? And Yes, exactly. Yes, I, I had that. And I'm sure there's probably a, a lot of people out there who have good ideas, but actually don't have those skills right. or don't realise how they right. can take it on. Mm. Now let's get on to, to you and Jeff. Where did you meet? Where, when, how, what? Right. We met in a pub, in a local pub, in a Sussex pub, (laughs) as you do. (laughs) A mutual friend of ours used to play the guitar, and he was playing live that evening, and so I'd gone with some friends, Jeff had gone with some friends, and we were introduced. And I think it was the next week we went to the boat show. Both of us had a love of sailing. So that was our first date, and we were really apart from then on. Right. For how long was that until he finally died? Um, it was just under 20 years right. that we spent time together. So we were together for 11 years before we decided to get married. Yes. Weren't really bothered about getting yes. married, but then thought we would you do that. You pretty quickly knew that this was the one. For yes, time. absolutely. We just got on so fantastically well. What did Jeff do? He was an architect. He built and designed houses. And uh, before that, he'd briefly been a pilot in the Air Force, which was something that he was massively proud of and often talked about. Yeah, exactly. But saw that as not a sensible career, I think, long term and had the opportunity to train essentially as a chartered surveyor. His niche was finding small plots of land and making more of them than your conventional developer would. Right. And he was also take quite small spaces and use them efficiently. That was his sort of speciality. So you'd established your life together, and mm-hmm. you had your two girls. We did. And then, sort of around what time and how old was Jeff? There's a little bit of an age difference between you and Jeff. There is. Um, well, there was. But, uh, so he was older than you. But when was it, and how old was Jeff, when the first inklings that something wasn't quite right, when did that occur, and what were the first inklings? I'm not quite sure that I know what they were. Yeah, and I was having to look back over this, because there's sort of a lot of stories, but as you say, when did they all start happening? I think the first thing that I can look back and remember as an indication that something was going wrong was when we were coming back from holiday in France. We'd driven over, we were coming back from Dover and it was in the early hours, so we were all tired. Jeff was driving, I was dozing and I realised suddenly that we were driving round and round the roundabout. There was just five minutes from home. We were almost home. He was tired and he'd come onto this roundabout and he had no idea which exit to take. He was completely confused. Right. And so when I woke up and I realised what was going on, I said, it's that road. Yes. Didn't really think anything more of it because I just put it down to being tired and stressed and, you know, end of holiday. And nothing like that happened for a while. But then, again, looking back, mm-hmm. one or two things happened... Again, you could always say, well, it was because he was tired or because mm. he was stressed. It's a succession of things, though, isn't it? Yeah. And this looking back phrase is always used by people. 
Exactly. And it was literally years before I realised that there was definitely something going wrong. Was it? It was as long as that? Yeah, oh, absolutely. It was a couple of years where very little happened. And what were the other sorts of signs? Often it's driving, isn't it? And I know some people who couldn't find their way back from the supermarket car park. Exactly. way into it, having done it every week for years. One of the things that I'd noticed he was really good at as a property developer was patience. Sometimes you have to wait for a a job to evolve over months or years. And he was very laid back. But I noticed that he would start to get stressed by things that would never have stressed him out before. And he would build up a level of anxiety that just wasn't the person that I knew. Mm. And I was increasingly having to sort of take on responsibility for things to reduce his stress and Mm. and keep them away from him, to keep Mm. him calm and even that was in in the early years before the word dementia came anywhere near us right what did you think was going on at the time then well I know that four years before his diagnosis because I kept a diary one of the values of keeping the diary was that it was really frustrating to say to family members or friends there's something not right and it's difficult to quite explain what it is and they'd say what and you'd say well He's lost his keys or something. And yeah, well, we all lose mm, our keys. Mm, and we well, do that thing of getting to the top of the mm, stairs. Mm, what am I up here and, for? And it was those things, but it was slightly more so. Yes. I would see him, for example, in a classic example that I've heard from somebody else, but I would see Jeff doing it, again in hindsight. You'd look at the keys. It's not that you found your keys and you now know what to do with them. He might have mislaid his keys. He finds the keys. He doesn't know what they are. Right. He then has forgotten the connection between them and locking the house or he needs to go out. And I think, again, there was this overlap with him. Really, he shouldn't have been driving. And eventually I managed to stop him driving, uh, which was a very difficult thing because even he recognised the importance of that needing to happen, but then he'd forget and he'd be storming around the house trying to find his keys. And even at extreme times, I would have to say that the car had broken down or something and he couldn't, oh, he couldn't drive it. Because and the car was there, but you'd agreed or... The yeah, and then he'd forget and he'd, he'd, suddenly there was a, a really important meeting he had to go to that he needed to have the car. But that was a little bit later. Such was his level of confusion. Mm-hmm. So in those early years, it was very slow. And then it was only in the last three or four years where things went completely pear-shaped. Mm-hmm. But that was partly because I was just taking more and more of his responsibilities away from him if you like and so he wasn't being tested Mm. and he could sort of cruise his way through Mm. a day Mm. without anything dreadful happening and meanwhile you were slowly frazzling up absolutely (laughs) I was because your girls were what age at this time yeah well they I think sort of when I first saw the signs they were eight or nine six and seven those sort of ages but I still remember us having good family times then he was still functioning quite well sort of 13 and 11 mm. I think they would agree was the time that they remember as him becoming really quite seriously ill mm. not capable of functioning mm. as they would expect of a parent mm. and how old was Jeff then roughly 70 71 something like that mm. so early the first 70s symptoms that occurred in his sort of mid 60s yes because actually if I work backwards he died when he was 78 I always he died in 2011 died in 2011 yeah, yeah. Altogether, I would say it was a 10-year stint, but the first two or three years, really, nobody thought about it being dementia. Mm -hmm. Then he was, yeah, early 70s, 71, 72, I'd have said, we 
started to see that things were definitely not... And he had to admit that things were not right. Because presumably you went to a doctor, didn't you? Yeah, well, it took me a long time to persuade him to go to the doctor. And then the first time it was almost funny how he wouldn't let me go with him. Right. And when he came back, he said, uh, the doctor said, there's nothing wrong with me at all. Any memory conf- and confusion is just down to my cold. And by this time, he was already sort of getting lost in the house and getting me slightly muddled up and Mm. unable to hold anything in his mind for very long. So I thought, that's just ridiculous. Mm. It was another whole year. Were you suspecting dementia by this point? Yes, I was absolutely sure it was dementia by then. Because these were the days before the internet was there, or completely there. And so I'd gone down to the library. (laughs) Oh, the library? I know, you had to... That old thing. How do you research something? I'd gone down to the library to look it up look up the symptoms and, and what might be uh, happening. In the very early days, something else happened, was that he had a blackout. So he did go to the doctor and get various tests. Now, I mean, nobody talked about dementia at that time, and nothing came out of that. But again, looking back, mm. was that one of those things? Mm. So we've talked about the various kinds of dementia it might have been, and Louis Bodies comes up as a possibility because blacking out is mm. one of those mm. things, and also trips and falls. But you didn't know that at the time, did you? Or did you? No, no, I didn't know that. No, didn't. It, I hadn't heard about Lewy bodies no. until he got a diagnosis, and even then they were saying possibly a mix of Alzheimer's and Lewy bodies, but we're not really sure. Sure, so common. Exactly. And how did you get the diagnosis then? I mean, obviously you persuaded Jeff to go back to the doctor, did you, and said it's probably not your cold? Yes. Well, a year later, right, he so eventually went. Yeah, and even then, he was then referred to a very old school, older person psychiatrist. Right. Which actually was just appalling how... He did this test, the MMSE test, which I'm very cynical about because actually Jeff was a bright guy. Yes. He sailed, sailed through, through it. it. Mm-hmm. I was sitting in the corner, actually didn't do quite as well as him. Don't explain to people <laughs> what that test is, just very quickly. Yes, well, as I remember it, things like counting back from 100 in sevens, mm. they start off by giving you three things to remember and then ask you at the end of the test whether you... Me. I know, I, know, I couldn't remember all three things when I was doing it myself in the corner and Jeff, of course, got them all. <laughs> Things like who's the current prime minister yes, and so on. But of yeah. course, you know, Jeff had an inkling of what he yeah. was going to go through. He prepped yeah. and yeah. he did it perfectly yeah. well. Yeah. And so the, the psychiatrist had had a little bit of a conversation with me before and I'd been explaining how Jeff was getting lost mm. in the house and he was no longer driving and, mm. and there was this level of confusion that just mm. couldn't be explained yes. away by stress. Yeah. And so he had that as the background. But he said to Jeff, there was nothing to worry about at all. He then asked him to sit in a chair, which is literally sitting in a chair in the corner, and proceeded to talk to me about Jeff's condition without any thought as to whether he might include Jeff in the conversation. Well, in, the, in the naughty corner. Exactly. And I kept on sort of trying to bring him in, and the guy just wasn't interested. How long ago was this, just as a matter of interest? Yeah. Well, things have moved on, of course, but that's got to have been in about 2007. Yes. It was still another year before he got the diagnosis. Right. And then they talked about possibility of Alzheimer's and blue bodies. And this was when he actually got referred to a memory assessment service. We'd moved to Brighton by now. The girls had gone to school in Brighton and we decided that that was the right thing to do. Mm. Now, again, was it the right thing for Jeff's illness? Mm. What, to he move was, out of his environment? Yes, mm. but he was already getting confused mm. in his current environment, so I thought, well, mm. what difference is it going to make? Mm. And if we can be much closer to mm. school, mm. then the children can walk home, mm. he doesn't need to be involved. Exactly. Mm. Mm. 
for my sins, I decided I was going to do a degree at the time. Well, well, I thought that I recognised to a degree what was happening with Jeff, but I thought we were going to be on this slow, steady decline. And Mm -hmm. actually, through a number of circumstances, he had a very sharp decline that um, took him far further along his dementia path. Well, amongst a variety of things, the real killer was that he had a detached retina. Yes. And he needed an overnight stay in hospital. And that really knocked him back. So he'd sort of been struggling along. Things had been getting worse, but that tipped him into a severe state of paranoia. Right. And now, when I think back, he'd already reached the stage where I was not able to leave him alone. So he wasn't working at all, but obviously not then, no. Well, he wasn't working, but we did have this number of years, twilight period, where he thought he could work and tried to work. Mm. And it was heartbreaking Mm. because he was struggling Mm. with... He would sit at his drawing board and I could see that he knew what he wanted Mm. to do but couldn't do it. And yet he wouldn't allow me to bring anybody else in to do that work either. Mm. So that was really tough. Mm. It sounds ridiculous to say it, but that was almost worse than when he got further along. People often say that, Zoe, don't they? Mm. Is that transitionary period when the person yeah. sort of knows and they're aware, and they're aware. he like, had massive I'm, insight into what was going on for with him. you and I always thought mm. my mother that was the most awful very sad they're all pretty awful aren't they they so, are you know, yes but so he, he got a detached retina explain yeah. why that gave such a deterioration well he had no um, insight as to what had happened, but I saw him reaching out for his mug yes. and missing it. So there was clearly something wrong with his eyesight. Mm-hmm. Booked him in to see the optician. And, of course, a detached retina is easy for, to see without any feedback from the person. And the idea is that you get booked in to repair it as quickly as possible mm-hmm. so as to save as much of the eyesight as possible. So speed is of the essence. Yeah. And as I always say, I I talk about this in in talks that I give, it was a fantastic response in regard to the eye, but was it the response that was appropriate for somebody with advanced dementia? And they knew this, the optician? They did. They knew that he had dementia, and the eye hospital down in Brighton knew as well. But everybody was just interested in repairing the eye as quickly as possible. Body parts, not people. Exactly. Exactly. And so he was booked in within 24 hours to go for this operation. Now, I, at this current time, was on my knees with exhaustion. Yes, of course. So when somebody says he's going to need a night in hospital, Mm. I think that's fantastic. Mm. I'm going to get a good night's sleep for the first time in as long as I can remember. Mm. And so you don't think yourself, Mm. is this the right thing Mm. for him? But somebody should have been saying... Mm. Is this the right course well, of action? they're also the experts, aren't they? That's, so. And you put yourself in the hands yeah, of the yeah. experts. So I dropped him down there, and when I went to pick up the next morning... So what, what is involved is an hour-long operation under local anaesthetic, which is traumatic enough anyway, and then the night for observation. Mm. When I picked him up, he was in this terribly paranoid state and didn't really know where he was, why he was there, mm. thought that he'd had terrible care... The doctors weren't interested in telling me what had happened to him as a, as a person over the last 24 hours at all. They just explained that we had to go and get these drops and to put them into his eye every two hours. And again, just wanted us off the premises as soon as possible because he was causing disruption. I wasn't even sure. It was about a 45 minutes drive from there to home. And I wasn't sure that I was going to be able to safely get us home in the car because he was ranting and just dreadfully anxious. And... That went on at the hospital. Yeah, 
and yeah. quite happy for you to it, go off in the car. It's, yeah. Because the eye was okay. The eye was okay. They, they'd done what they needed to do to the eye, and he was just a person with, clearly had dementia and problems, but uh, not their problem. So I didn't Strange know whether... across the yeah. exactly. of knowing and <laughs> frustrated looks, yes. It, it was slightly unbelievable, really, when I look mm. back. I had no idea whether this was the trauma, and he was going to sort of... Well, I knew he wouldn't bounce back to where he was mm. before. I'd learnt by this point, when you have knocks, you don't bounce back to where you were before. Mm. Mm. But was it something that was going to wear off the, the anaesthetic and mm. he would be okay? Mm. But actually, his behaviour got worse and worse. He got really confused about the house and where we were, didn't recognise the children, which then, you know, again, there's a sort of level of insight that he knew he was supposed to know them. Yes but got very anxious that yes. he couldn't make sense of where he was or what was happening. very distressing for everybody involved. Terribly. But back on this paranoid session, again, it was a bit of a learning for me because the jury is out, as far as I'm concerned, as to how far you go to corroborate where they feel they are in their reality oh, yes. and how far you correct them. Now, I absolutely do not think you should perpetually correct somebody. So if someone close to them has died, you don't keep reminding them that they've died Mm. if they're looking for them Mm. equally he was very confused as to who I was we had had carers coming in so Mm. there were times when he thought that I was a carer right we were having a perfectly normal conversation once when I thought this is fantastic we're having a lucid conversation Mm. and I was talking about the degree I was doing Mm. and he said oh yes my wife's doing that as well and I suddenly realized that actually we were having a good conversation, but you know, he wasn't talking to his wife. He'd just completely confused oh, me with somebody you else. Do, I mean, well, that in that precise moment, I decided to go with what people had said. I didn't correct him, and so I said, "Oh, right, that's interesting. And what's she doing?" And then we moved on. And later on that night, he woke up next to me and looked at me and thought that I was impersonating his wife. And I now look back and think. If I'd corrected him at that moment when I'd had the opportunity to do it, would he not have had that confused moment in bed? I don't know. It's complicated, and the human mind is a very it complex is. thing. And, and actually, it's very sweet because you're so much a doer, and I'm so much a... When I say thinker, I don't mean I'm a great thinker, but I kind of think about things, get nowhere normally. And I was thinking, <laughs> when I asked you that, it's so sweet, because actually I, I sort of meant what went on in your own mind at the point when your husband right. was mistaking you, because obviously that's doing terrifically things profoundly to you. Yes, oh, it's, it's upsetting, but I suppose life was just one big it's upset, upset. You just all have to, the time. You just have to keep going. You just go with it, yes. Yeah. Um, we were talking before, weren't we, about compartmentalising, and at a level... I had to separate myself from mm. some of this. Mm. And even you know, when I started talking about these things later on, yeah. you just sort of go onto a different yeah. plane to just survive yeah. it. So whilst I was living through it, I had to be there for the girls as well. And I had to be there for Jeff. You know, there was no point in me collapsing in a heat because I needed to keep things together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, he, so he woke up, saw this person he didn't recognise and threw me out of bed, chased me down the corridor and tried to throw me down the stairs. Right. And again, I mean, frightening for me, but how frightening for him yeah. to wake up with this person. He doesn't know who, yeah. who it is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that was really the time that I asked for help because yeah. I thought yeah, this, this is dangerous for all yeah. of us, for him, yeah. For, yeah. for me, for the girls. Yeah. That you can be in a, what you feel is a reasonably controlled situation. Yes. And actually then suddenly it turns. Yes. And, you know, I was lucky that something worse didn't happen. Yeah, so what did you do? 
Well, so I called initially the GP who called the, I don't know what they were called then, you'd call them the crisis team Mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. And the one bit of advice was good then was that actually even then they were saying that hospital would be the worst place Mm -hmm. for him. I was sort of imagining some place that would be appropriate to care for him because Mm -hmm. I couldn't risk having him at home like that. Mm -hmm. So they came in to see us and said the best thing, to do is to put him onto antipsychotics to calm his behaviour down. Let's see if we can manage this paranoia and confused state, which, of course, now again, having done a lot more reading about it, I mean, even then, the writing was out there to say mm-hmm. this is a dangerous course of, of mm-hmm. action for somebody with dementia. Were well, they thinking of giving him, those, him remaining at home with you? Or? Well, he did, yeah. So he was at home, and it calmed him down at one level immediately but it also I mean it was, again it was horrible to watch because it was like the chemical kosh mm. and he would just mm. sit in the chair mm. sort of just not there really mm. and then they tried to get the dose right and they changed different medications and he suddenly got massive bursts of energy and so they would often happen at two o'clock in the morning yes. and there was a time when suddenly we had to change the sheets and on the bed yes. at two o'clock in the morning and things yes. like that and he was yes. ranting yes. all around the house and then he would just go out like a light so and a lot of that was down to the antipsychotics mm. I think and so you must have been really struggling still because you were getting well no sleep really exactly yes and of course your two girls were by then young teenagers it must have been difficult for them too it was in many ways And when you asked me to come on this podcast, I did go back to them and ask for their comments Mm. because apart from anything else, we haven't spoken about it for a long time. And Mm. I thought I'd get their memories, if you like, Mm. now that they are much older and a lot of time has passed. And if I may, uh, rather than paraphrase it, um, I'd like to read you out just a little bit that uh, Gabby came back to me with. This is what Gabby said. This is what Gabby said. I struggled most with him in company him starting to tell a story in a beautiful and charismatic way, and me knowing that at any moment he was going to lose his train of thought and forget where he was going with his story. And I'd always be crossing my fingers under the table saying, I love you, I love you, hoping that he wouldn't forget. I hadn't heard her say that before, and I think it does sum up how loving they were towards him. Absolutely. As difficult it was for them. too. Massively, yeah. Really wonderful, actually. And then you... Jeff went to live alone. Well, he was assessed, wasn't he? First? Yes, well, so the, how he ended up really in the care home was that during this time of trying to get the antipsychotics right, half term was coming up. I really felt I needed to give the girls some time. Right. Couldn't do that with the way life was. We were just lurching from you mm. know one out of the next mm. as to how to keep Jeff safe and mm. make sure life could continue. Mm. And so... I took the advice that people had been giving me, but I really didn't want to go there because I couldn't see it working, which was to book Jeff in for a weekend's respite. Mm. And I really didn't like the idea, but I thought, well, we've got to do this, see if that Why works. Why did you not like the idea? Well, I suppose because uh, it's the old cliche of nobody knew him as well as I did, mm. and we're back on the communication thing. How were they going to know what... Were you already it, worried about that then before? I did, right. yes. So you kind of preempted it, you saw it in a way coming. Yeah, I mean, I had no idea how social care and things work at all. But yeah. when I decided to book him in and I took him into this care home for literally three nights, 
I did expect them to do some kind of assessment with me and discussion of the things that mattered and certainly they they took what medication he was on and so on. But they didn't ask me anything about him at all. Slightly compartmentalising themselves there. Exactly. Quite. Well, I think they saw themselves as providing care for somebody whose wife needed a rest. And that was it. And again, he was the number. Did they see Jeff as Jeff? They didn't. But I told them one thing, and that was that he drank his tea black. Because his life, his quality of life, had shrunk so far that the difference between getting Absolutely. a drink the way he liked this it or the not, small things, isn't it, it is the small yeah. things. Yeah. Yes, in the start of my work, I used to get a bit defensive about saying that. It seems very unimportant. But actually, and you touched on it in your introduction, that had a major impact on his health that weekend. So it was then... But you actually told them that. I did. I told, I told the manager that. And again, you know, there's no line of communication. There was no method for him to ensure that that got to the carers who were looking after him. And even if it had got to the first shift, how was the next shift going to know? So when I went in to pick him up on the, well, in fact, it was complicated. On the Monday morning, he'd been given a sedative in error. So it was a a catalogue of errors. And he was fast asleep, couldn't wake him up, went back later and I went to see him. He was sitting in a chair, looking very anxious, and they were trying to get him to drink. And they knew already what turned out to be the case, was that he was severely dehydrated. Mm. He'd not been drinking. Mm. And they were trying to get him to drink out of this mug. And when I looked in the mug, it was milky tea. Mm. And I have to admit, I was incensed. And I said, but he drinks black tea. Mm. And has nobody told you? And it wasn't the carer's fault at mm. all. She was mm. just trying to do her job. And of course, the default... If you want to give somebody a cup of tea, you give them a milky cup of tea, don't you? Because that's what we do. Mm. And as a result of that dehydration, he effectively lost the ability to walk. Mm. Mm. And so I couldn't take him home. Mm. And so, you know, huge impact. And that's when he went to the assessment ward. Mm. So one small thing, cumulative impact. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. And Mm. from that... Now, who's to say that this all wouldn't have happened one way or another in a few weeks' time anyway? Mm. His dementia was advanced, but I think... Because I knew how to look after him, we were sort of Mm. trying to get a routine in place, Mm. he was in his own environment, Mm. things might have gone on at a steady rate if it hadn't been for that detached retina and the overnight stay in hospital. There's something about the dignity of a human life at stake here, isn't there? Mm -hmm. Quite apart from, you know, while dementia is deterioration anyway, you know, where it goes one way down the street, but there's something about the life of Jeff, about your husband, or the life of my mum, or... Absolutely. Which is just sort of forgotten in the whole process of it all. I think we're much better at it now, Mm. but I would say that also there's a risk that we live in an echo chamber where we think it's Mm. all much better. Mm. And there's talking to like-minded people. Exactly. Mm. And I wonder how many people, like me, I mean, I didn't ask for help. I should have asked for help much sooner than I did. Mm. And there was knowledge out there. But perhaps also there's an argument for making that somebody could have been pushing that help on me a little harder. Absolutely. And you don't know where to look for help, do you? You don't. You know, it's already well saying look for help when you've got absolutely no idea where to look for it or really what you're looking for. Exactly. You don't know what questions to ask. Mm. And in the early stages, we had gone to one of the carers' groups mm. for a coffee mm. in the morning somewhere. Mm. But it was fairly early, and mm. Jeff absolutely didn't want to engage mm. with something like that. Mm. And you look around, and mm. you see people at a further mm. stage mm. on, mm. and I totally sympathise with that. Mm. You don't want it 
shoved mm. down your throat. Mm. And that, that is the challenge, of course. It is. When is the right time for all of these things to kick in? Because often, by the time you need them, it's, it's sort of too late, and then mm. you're playing catch-up all the mm. time. Mm. It's also very individual, isn't it? So something Jeff didn't like, somebody else might like. And totally. It just, you know, yeah. It's very difficult to sort of legislate for it. it, it, it Everybody has their unique way. experience, mm. and it's, it is, as you say, very difficult mm. to sort of impose a plan on somebody because that may not work mm. for them. So, but to go back now, going towards your various enterprises, um, Jeff, how long did he remain in the care home? I and you really were just doing this rather, as I rudely called it, this Heath Robinson issue approach. Well, no, it, it was, worked. it was, it, it worked, worked as well. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, from the, I think it went from post-it notes to a laminate, so to the high-tech world of the laminated a chart. Absolutely, chart. it did. So just talk us through that, talk us through when you did that, because I believe you really started going with that. After Jeff had... Well, I, I started taking it out to other care homes properly after Jeff had died, but I'd put it up in his room, oh, I think in the first few weeks, mm. because I saw that, again, mistakes were happening mm. because they didn't know about the things that were... This time, that you know, the, the care home manager had produced a really good care plan, but it was all, as you said, tucked away, tucked away in her, neatly in her mm. office. And so there were mistakes happening, as I say, that didn't need to happen if they just knew the basics about him. So I wrote these, these notes up. And then it did make a difference. I had examples where care staff were interacting with him in a way that they wouldn't have been able to if they didn't know anything about him. So they were chatting to him about his grandchildren that he, mm. he loved. Mm. And there were a couple of male carers who loved the fact that he'd been a pilot, and so they talked to him yes, about flying. Yes, were not just things about dietary preferences. No, you know, not at all. background facts about his life, and his yep. career, and his children, his family opportunities to develop a relationship and of course there's a lot of research that's gone into recognizing that when you know something about somebody you care for them in a in a more personal way so you have an increase in empathy and when there's a higher level of empathy then the quality of care goes up so I was seeing that but really as a business it took off really only had time to do it after he died and I was I think partly doing it as a way of making sense of the really dire situation he'd found himself in and uh, keeping busy mm. and uh, making something good come out of something that was pretty awful. Mm. And just to, without upsetting you or anything, but just to sort of so when he died, uh, by which time he had very severe dementia, how did you feel? Whew. A whole host of things. Do you know, I remember sitting by his bedside and actually feeling angry with him for about 10 minutes you know, how dare you go and leave me in this situation? And this, it's just been so unfair, the whole thing. That lasted about 10 minutes. What shocked me was that I thought that I'd done my grieving. Um, a, I'd done my grieving, I thought, when I'd sort of started to lose the partner that I'd had in life. He and I had been a really good team as parents to the children and running our lives. We had a fantastic relationship. And when... I started to realise that I couldn't share things like decisions around the children's schooling and stuff because he would get confused and anxious. Mm. I'd lost him at that level. Then when he went into the care home, I lost him again. Mm. And, you know, he was disappearing. Or he'd effectively disappeared by then as the person that I'd married and I'd mm. been living with as my partner. But I was shocked to feel a whole new level of grief when he actually died. I didn't mm. expect that. Mm. And then perhaps almost as bad was the 365th day when everyone said, oh, you must 
give grief a year. And you sort of hang on to that year as being, oh, well, after I've grieved for a year, after he's been dead for a year, I'll be okay, mm. kind of thing. I mean, you, you know at an intellectual level that's mm. ridiculous, but mm. you sort of, you need this mm. to end somehow, you need life mm. to get better. Mm. Mm. I mean, it wasn't quite as simplistic as waking up on the first day of the second year, but I thought, I don't magically feel better. I'm no. still grieving for him. And so I learned to give into that in a way. I don't mean I sort mm. of stopped living or put my life on hold, mm. but I gave myself permission yeah. to just go with it for as long as it That's took. That's one of the things that you say you learned mm. uh, about grief, about these different stages of grief, and the way that caught you off guard a bit, This the way it hit you when he actually died, as it, opposed to, yeah. um, as I talked about actually with another guest of mine on a podcast, the giving up of somebody to a care home. There's definitely a grief that goes on then. But then yes, there's another grief that it does seem to be, as somebody else said, the never-ending grief of the dementia carer. Yes. Um, family member carer. And it is a bit like that dementia, isn't it? It's, it is. Cool. Well, it's about, the, and I think it's something else that we've talked about, is the death and the dying aspect. You, you grieve when somebody's mm. died, but this concept of grieving for somebody when they're still they're alive, alive. Um, but going through this process. Very difficult. It, it is tough. Yeah. And as I said to you, I, you know, I am a bit of a control freak. Mm. And so I recognised mm. this as being something that mm. I was fighting against because actually it was in control of my life. And, mm. you know, that, that's not comfortable for me. So well out of your comfort zone. Yeah. But you learned to just sort of roll with it a bit. I did. And I gave myself time. Mm. I gave myself space. I almost emptied my mind oh, in a way. You were exhausted, yeah. of course, as well. Yes, and I think it takes years to sort of recover from that as well, years mm-hmm. and years of mm-hmm. you don't realise... Again, carers say it all the time, you don't realise you've become a carer mm-hmm. and then you don't realise how much you've taken on and mm-hmm. that you're doing and just mm-hmm. surviving. Mm-hmm. I do understand how people say they're going to do things and then actually they just find that the day is full and you're mm-hmm. mentally exhausted and you're mm-hmm. physically mm-hmm. exhausted. Mm-hmm. You don't have room for anything else other than the caring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's tough. So that was the Care Charts UK, really, that became, didn't it? Which was really built on the Care yeah. Charts. And then you went on to put it online, which was My Care Matters. Exactly, yes. And that was because hospitals started to show an interest. And I realised that actually we needed to find a way for people to create profiles in advance of a hospital stay. And it's very difficult, as we've talked about before, to get people to do things like that until it's almost already too Mm, late, mm, because none of us want to think about what might happen in the future. mm, mm. But if you can just prepare a profile for the event that you might have, like Jeff had that overnight stay, you know, I had Mm. no time to prepare for that at Mm, all. mm. If I'd put this in place and been able to give the hospital an information sheet about him, I think it would have helped hugely. Mm, mm. If only just to remind them that he is a human being and he wasn't, right. as you said, just an eye mm. to be cared for. You've mm. got to take a more holistic view. Mm. So yes, My Care Matters is all about creating a profile for somebody in the event of a hospital stay, or it can be used in care homes as well, mm. or in people's own homes. Mm. And then that went on to my latest project, the My Future Care Handbook, mm. because I realised that creating a My Care Matters profile is actually just one part of the things that we need to do to think about our future care and our end of life. Mm. Mm. So mm. that's been a whole new body of work as well. Yes, and that was another one of the things that you'd learned, wasn't it, about this, the, the way we die? Yes, well, of course, with Jeff and I having this age difference, we had talked very sensibly about the likelihood of him dying before me, and so obviously we needed to do things like wills and powers mm. of attorney, mm. but we only talked about him being dead. We didn't mm. talk about 
how that might occur and the fact that it could take years. Mm. Um, and that sounds rather sort of harsh, but the reality was he didn't have capacity mm. to make any decisions for himself for a number of years before he died. Mm. And we had put powers of attorney in place, and thank goodness we had. But I think in our minds we were thinking if we had a car crash or mm. something and we were in a coma, mm. or we needed an operation and temporarily we needed somebody mm. to mm. make decisions on our behalf. Mm. We didn't think about years and years of dying. No, and I wonder if you would now, because dementia is so much more talked about that actually people often say to me, oh, I'm worried about developing dementia. It's now become so much more talked about, hasn't it? And you said, and another one of my guests has said, that one of the main things they found out was that they didn't know anything about dementia. And I said in my intro, I didn't either. But I wonder if that's changing, because it's just higher up the agenda, really, and it is talked about at least. I think it is, and I think there is still the stigma there, but it's less of a stigma, so people are more prepared to go out there and ask questions and research and, you know, maybe say to a doctor, is this something Mm. that we Mm. should be testing for? Because the spouse or the daughter or the son tends to know that person, of course, very Mm. well. Yes. So they say, actually, there's something just definitely not right. I really don't think it's just depression. I hear that so many times from relatives. Yes. And the medical professional saying, oh, this is depression, give them the antidepressants. And they think, no, exactly. no, no it's not just that. Yes. And it is very difficult to try and put your finger on exactly what is wrong sometimes. But somebody has changed and the different dementias will do different things to people and behaviour mm. will, will act. Mm. And again, as we said, you know, it's complex. There's an overlap. There may be different things causing people to react in certain ways. Well, of course. And then if somebody is older, they often have all sorts of things going on in their body, don't they, which interreact. Quite, yeah. Mm. But I think your point about me sort of not knowing anything about it to start with, what I wish now, back on your your theme, Mm. what I wished then that I'd known about more was Mm. the absolute lack of understanding about dementia anyway. We were Mm. Mm. absolutely told to go home and just get on with life. Absolutely. No sense that there might be ways of mitigating things that were happening Mm. to him. I know that I was too quick to take things on from him when he struggled to do them. And actually, I should have encouraged him Mm. to keep those skills. I when you told me that, actually, because it's almost Mm. counterintuitive. Mm. You want to help. Yeah. But actually, what you learned from Jeff's dementia is you need to step back and just be patient and give somebody a bit more time because their brain might take a little bit more time to try and let them... Exactly. Stop answering their... completing their sentences, give them space to do it in their own time. And I'm quite sure that I didn't help Jeff's stress levels at times because I was always in a hurry and he needed more space to do these things. No, I know. Nearly. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I I have learnt, you know, not to beat myself up. I mean, I could have done so much better if I'd had the knowledge that I have now, then. But I didn't. And we were just struggling from day to day. No, well, that's hopefully what we're trying to sort of, you and I and various people trying to just do our little bit to to, to show what's out there and to make a bit of a tiny difference. So thank you, Zoe. Thank you for having me. So that was Zoe Harris. And I am full of admiration for her. She is the consummate doer. And her three enterprises are the care charts that sprang directly from her husband's dementia experiences. And they can be found at www.carechartsuk.co.uk. And then the online version, which again can be found at www.mycarematters.org. And finally, the handbook, which can be found at www.mycarematters.org. My future care.org, 
which is a handbook for the future care of someone who perhaps can't communicate. Zoe's story, I think, shows in a really good way how the smallest things can have a very big impact. And finally, if you've enjoyed listening today, I would be very, very grateful if you would rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform or channel you're listening to it on, as this will help spread the word about the podcast. And then together, perhaps we can further diminish the stigma, increase the knowledge and quash the myths surrounding dementia.